Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. It's always that weird, awkward pause while you're waiting for the video to end (laughs) before you start speaking. Uh, My name is Nick Jonkowski. I'm the associate pastor here at Mosaic Church, and on behalf of myself, on behalf of everybody here at Mosaic, we are so glad that you've decided to join us. Whether it's in person or you're joining us online, we welcome you. Before we jump into God's Word this morning, I'd like to invite us to pause for a moment uh, simply to pray, to invite God's Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. God, the words of that song echo true in my heart this morning. Father, I'm not enough unless you come. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be in this room today, that your presence would be in this place, that we would encounter you in a new way, Jesus. Lord, that our lives would be transformed by your word, and that we would leave here differently than when we first arrived. We thank you for that, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, the New York Times reported a strange occurrence that occurred at 112th West 44th Street in Manhattan. Two women who were later identified as Lana Barnett and Sandra Spannon stood on the street corner, dressed all in white, and welcomed passersby to unburden their souls. The Times wrote of the unusual scene, Miss Barnett would silently attempt to garner attention of nearby people and would point to the words that were uh, stenciled onto the glass of a storefront window. And the words read this, Air your dirty laundry. 100% confidential, anonymous, and free. And anyone who took up Miss Barnett on her offer would be given a clipboard and a piece of paper along with an envelope with the word secret printed across the front of the envelope. And amazingly, hundreds of people partook in this social experiment that day. Executives to street people, couriers to secretaries, shoppers to joggers, all would pause to write down their secret sins, seal it in the envelope, and then hand it to Laura Barnett. And as they did so, her, her partner in crime, as it was, Miss Spannon, would quietly draw their portrait on the side. Once the participants were well out of range, they would take these envelopes and would open them and take out the confessions and would paste them onto the storefront window. They also included a portrait of the person somewhere else on the window as well. Those walking by read the confessions of these strangers before they themselves added to the mural. Some of the confessions were silly and others of them were heartbreaking. One read, the hermit crab was still alive when I threw it down the trash chute. Another said, I want to see SUVs explode. Those people are so selfish. As the day passed, this once empty storefront window became papered like a wall of guilt. 
One read, I'm dating a married man and getting financial compensation in exchange for my guilt. I'm 25 and he's a millionaire. And another simply said this, I have AIDS. This little storefront experiment that was performed in the heart of Manhattan reveals some interesting facts, but of the most uh, importance was that of all the generations, of all income levels, of all people who were of different social standings that participated in this experiment, all were hiding something. Some were hiding from police or parents. Others were hiding from their coaches or teachers. Some were hiding from their bosses, and others were hiding from their spouses. But I think every one of us could probably say all were hiding from God. If I'm honest this morning with you, church, I hide too. I hide too. In fact, this week I spent a lot of time just kind of reflecting in my own mind what would it be that I would write down on that piece of paper were I to have crossed paths with those people in New York that day? Would my secret confession be silly? Might I write something like, I got away with putting a lot of X-lax in my teacher's coffee cup in middle school and never got caught? True story. Or would I be more bold, more transparent, more revealing? Might I write something like, I have a difficult time maintaining a balance in between my work-life ministry. And the person who often suffers for it most is my wife. The truth is, is that sometimes, church, I hide too. I hide things that I should confess But I'm sure as I stand here, I'm probably the only one who ever hides things, right? (laughs) Of course not. I think the secrets in this room alone could probably fill that storefront window in downtown Manhattan. In fact, perhaps even as I'm speaking now, you sense some of those deep closets that have been locked away in the inner resources of your heart begin to open. For some sitting here this morning, maybe it's something shameful from your past. And for others of you, you don't have to look back on your life because your secret is in the present moment. Maybe it's an abortion, a shady deal that you participated in, something you stole. Maybe it's a pornography addiction that you can't shake. Perhaps it's lying scheming or cheating that no one else but you knows about. The truth is, we all hide. And really, further complicating this matter for many is the current state of our cultural context. We are, after all, this morning talking about cancel culture. And our cancel culture tends to add extra layers of fear, of shame, and of guilt upon our need to confess. And so... The thought of being found out in our modern-day cancel culture that can result in public shaming and at the very worst can lead us to be canceled in our places of employment, by our peers, and even in our homes can be terrifying. The thought of becoming the proverbial sacrificial lamb in the hands of our cultural outrage mob mentality can make the difficult task of confessing seem nearly impossible. 
And so as a result, I think many of us, myself included, tend to refer back to our lesser, baser human instinct to hide our sin. And if you don't believe me, go back to the pages of Genesis and see that the first man and the first woman, when sin entered the world, what did they do? They hid. And so we either resort to hiding or we resort to another more culturally approved way out. We shift blame. We tend to point the finger at somebody else. Or we blame someone else for our misgivings. We tell ourselves that my failures, my moral failures, are the result of my environment or somebody else's sins entirely. And I want to tell you this morning, church, that That's not to say that environmental factors, things like economics, like race, like our family of origin, don't play an impact on some of the decisions that we make as individuals. But to lay the blame of our decisions, of our failures at the feet of someone else or something else is to deny the factual basis of our autonomy as human beings. And I will say this, it is wholly unbiblical. But needless to say, the prospect of relieving from ourselves the weight of the shame and the guilt that we carry from our secret sins through the process of confessing and seeking forgiveness seems to grow more and more difficult with each passing day. Cancel culture seems to create more questions in our minds than it does answers, doesn't it? Questions like, What good is an apology if no one is willing to hear it? Whose forgiveness should I care most about when I apologize? And ultimately, what's the point of even pursuing confession at all if as a society all we desire is to hang on to our anger instead of really moving on? with things at such a cultural impasse. I wouldn't blame you. I've done it too myself. If you've ever stopped to wonder if the pursuit of confession, of seeking forgiveness in our lives, is even a worthy goal in the life of our uh, faith, or is it merely just another archaic notion of something from a bygone era? As modern-day followers of Jesus, we might be tempted to question whether or not God truly expects us to confess our sin in a cancel culture? Or have we evolved as a society to the point where we just simply feel it's better to cover up or to point the finger at somebody else for our sin? The truth is this morning, guys, God's word is not silent on this issue. In fact, as we go back and look this morning at a story in the Old Testament, we're going to read about a man who blew it big time. And just like us, he hid his secret sin instead of confessing it to God. And the fallout from this man's actions and his subsequent response to them can teach us some important lessons about navigating confession and forgiveness, even in our cancel culture. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you, or even your Bible apps, to open them to the book of Psalms, chapter 51. And I want to explore together what God has to say on this important issues. But before we jump um, into reading Psalm 51 as you're getting there, I think it's important that we understand some of the background of what's happening here. It's important to understand the heartbreaking circumstances that led to the creation of this psalm. 
as we look at the psalm, there's a brief introduction at the very beginning that reads this, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's secret sin has been found out. And you can read more about this divinely inspired interaction between King David and the prophet Nathan in the book of 2 Samuel in your Bibles. However, this morning, for the sake of time, let me just give you the very abridged version of what happened. David was a king in Israel. He had an affair, got her pregnant, and then killed her husband trying to cover it up. The end. Or at least David thought it was, right? David thought he had gotten away with it. He thought he had hidden it enough that it would never come back. And yet, several months later, God sent a prophet to stroll through the royal palace and to call King David to the carpet for his sin. Now, David didn't live in a cancel culture like we do, but nonetheless, he was still a very popular public figure. His entire reputation as a king, as the spiritual leader of Israel, is hanging in the balance of this moment. And so it would be easy to imagine that when you have the power of the presidency, when you have the power of a king, that David in this moment could have denied ever doing the things that happened. He could have criticized the person who was attacking him. Or he could have just claimed plausible deniability. But instead, in this moment, we read in Scripture that David just humbly said, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. But the story doesn't stop there. The story doesn't end in this moment. Our God doesn't cancel David in this moment. David gives his heartfelt words recorded in the pages of Psalm 51. And as he confesses to God this sin, he also offers to us today as modern readers practical steps that we can follow to pursue confession and forgiveness even after we've blown it as well. And so let's check out what David wrote beginning in verse 1. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The amazing thing about David's confession is that he begins where all confession should begin, by declaring his dependency upon the character of God. Because even despite the moment that David has been found out, he's in his own remorse, he's mourning over his sin, even in this dark moment, David's eyes are still fixed on the unfailing love, on the great compassion of God. And this is where the penitent king starts, not where he ends. He starts with his praise of God. And as a church, as modern-day followers, we would do well to follow David's example in our own journeys of personal confession. I think one of the reasons that we so oftentimes struggle with hiding our sin is because we have a misunderstanding of the very nature of God who we are called to confess to. You see, when we sin 
in our imaginations, we hold on to this view of God as being one who is infinitely angry at us, who is infinitely vengeful at us, who is infinitely ready to squash us like a bug on a windshield when we mess up. Now, when we have that view of God, when we approach confession with that view of God, is it any reason, that any wonder why we're hesitant to come and confess? And that's not to say, guys, this morning that God is not holy. Our God is holy. And it's his holiness that oftentimes brings about an awareness in our minds of our own sin and brokenness. It's kind of like when you look at your car that you haven't washed for a while and you think, ah, it's not that bad, right? It's still kind of clean. And then up pulls next to you a car that's been washed and waxed and detailed. And suddenly all the dirt is exposed on your car and you realize, wow, my car is really dirty. That is what happens when our lives are held up next to the holiness of God. It brings an awareness to us of our own sin and brokenness in that moment. And as our awareness of our brokenness and our sin moves us to a place of confession, we should do so in full view of God's limitless love and compassion for us, not despite it. And how great is God's compassion for us, church? I want you to notice something very important in the text. Twice, David uses the words according to, not the words out of. You say, well, why does that matter? What's important about the words according to? It's very important, at least in terms of the ancient Hebrew, because when you look at the words out of in the ancient Hebrew, it refers to a portion, or other words, something that is limited in scope or limited in its availability. But the words according to refer to the proportion of God's compassion and love both of which are limitless. In other words, our God is not a penny pincher when it comes to his mercies. He doesn't just dole out little drops of his mercy here and there when he feels like it. No, our God is extravagant in his mercy. He pours out his faithful love to us. His are abundant mercies. And when our God forgives us, he forgives us in a way that our imaginations as a human being cannot even begin to fathom how much and how wide and how great and how deep our God's forgiveness is. And even more astounding is that David makes this confession, think about this, before his eyes have ever seen, before his mind has ever conceived the fullness of God's revelation and his love for fallen humanity, the work and the person of Jesus Christ. We who now sit on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection are able to grab hold of the knowledge that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall receive eternal life. We know because of what God says that, that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in his Son's death on a cross. We cling to the promise that says, 
God will never separate us from our, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if David, who lacked a full purview of the gospel of God, the incarnation of God's love in Christ Jesus, was able in his sin to be able to say, I depend upon your unfailing grace, your great compassion, Lord, how much more so can we as followers of Jesus who have received in abundance the mercy of Christ also go to the throne room of grace with confidence knowing that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. You see, church cancel culture teaches us that we should hide out of fear of people. We should hide our sin out of fear of others. And I think oftentimes we kind of transfer that over to others. And not only that, we transfer it over to God. But imagine how our approach to confession might change if, like David, we began our confession with praise on our lips about the limitless glories of God's mercy, about the unfathomable reaches of his love for us in Christ Jesus. I dare say, church, that in that scenario, in that situation, we would not hide our sin, but that we would run that we would run with open arms and unabated, willingly going to the, gro- the throne of grace to lay down the burdens that we so often carry. God, I can't want this. You love me too much. Take this, Lord. True confession starts in the hearts of those who declare their dependency upon God. And David continues in verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Again, you only, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. I love this part of the psalm because David doesn't mince his words in this moment. David has chosen to get real about his sin. He doesn't rationalize, he doesn't minimize, he doesn't excuse away or put a spin on what he's done. David's already spent a time in his life trying to deny what he had done. But when he comes to the place that he realizes that he's only succeeded in playing himself, my dude gets to the place where he decides, I'm no longer going to play games with God. I'm no longer going to play games with God. And so David in this moment confesses with an unmistakable clarity about how greatly he had missed the mark. And I think one of the reasons, again, one of another reasons why we struggle to confess in our cancel culture is that so often we minimize, and I do this all the time, we minimize our sin. We try to justify our sin. We go along with the cultural narrative that says, everything is permissible to me as long as it's not hurting somebody else. And as we've already said, In light of God's holiness, there is no such thing as a big or a small sin. In the eyes of God, sin is sin. All sin kills. All sin separates. All sin destroys. No matter how much we as human beings try to rationalize and minimize it away. So what happens in the life of a believer who tries to candy coat or remain silent about the sin in his life? I invite you to let David share, from you, share with you from his own experience. 
Because in Psalm 32, he wrote this. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as the heat in the summer. In other words, David recognizes that when I remain silent about my sin, when I sugarcoated, when I candy-coated what I was doing, when I minimized the sin in my life, it was like the desert. I was torn up inside. I was depressed. I ached as though I was dying. And the weight of my sin was killing me. In other words, for David, the rationalization or the minimalization of his sin was a poison to his soul. He says it was killing me from the inside out. And contrary to our popular belief today, if we're going to come clean before God, that is the first step towards walking into freedom. Because think of it this way, church. If I never confess my sin... If I never admit that I'm doing something wrong, if I harbor my shame and guilt in the darkness of my sin, I never step into the light to be able to receive the forgiveness of God. I never am able to taste the glory of God's love when I don't confess because I'm holding it to myself in the darkness. But if I step forward and I say, God, I made a mistake. God, I'm sorry I've sinned. In that moment, then, I am free to receive the forgiveness of my Heavenly Father and free to receive forgiveness from others. True confession starts in the heart of those who are real about their sin. David doesn't stop there. He continues again in verse 7. He says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. As you read through Psalm 51, tucked away in all the different statements that David makes in his confession, we read things like, God, be gracious to me. God, blot out my transgressions. God, wash away my guilt and cleanse me from sin. And when David cries out for mercy, he's appealing to God's willingness to do it in that moment. When he asks for his sins to be erased and to be washed and cleansed, he's crying out to God to do a work within him. He's asking God to do something that only God can do in that moment, and that is the forgiveness and the remission of his sins. And David's petition in this moment is amplified in verse 7 when he says, God, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And it seems so obvious to say this, church, but I think one of the big things when it comes to confession that so many of us miss so often, myself included, is that we're quick to ask for forgiveness from God, but we're so slow to actually receive it. We confess, God, I need your forgiveness. But then how often do I come back to the Lord and say, God, I messed up, I messed up, I messed up. And I was talking with Don about this last night. It's like God would say, have we not already had this conversation? I've forgiven you, go. And yet we don't hold on to that. And again, the notion of believing and receiving forgiveness flies directly in the face of our modern day cancel culture. Listen, you don't have to think very long or hard to think of a celebrity who's had to apologize multiple times for the same sin 
over and over and over again. I found out this week, I wish I didn't know this, but the New York Post has an entire web page dedicated to celebrity apologies. You can literally go out on their website and track who's apologizing when and what they're apologizing for and how many times they've apologized. That is our culture. And in our cancel culture, repeated public displays of remorse are often demanded, but true forgiveness is rarely given. And though we may be tempted to do so, church, we must not conflate our cancel culture's response to pleas of forgiveness with that of our Lord. Because when we approach his throne of grace to confess, when we approach his throne of grace to receive his forgiveness, we must do so with a confidence that his scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. And I love that idea because I was reading again about that this week. And the, the east versus west is such an important distinction because if you think about our globe, if, I were to, if they were to say as far as the north is from the south, it, it's different. Because if I was to start to walk north on this planet and I walked north as far as I could until I got to the center of the North Pole, eventually I'm going to go over and I'm going to start heading south, right? North becomes south at some point. But God, in his wisdom, says if you start walking east, you're always going to be walking east. There is no point where it intersects with west. And that is how far, when you confess, when you call upon the name of Christ, that I cast out your sins. There's never a place where they intersect. It's gone. It's gone. And so true confession starts with the heart of those who receive God's forgiveness. And finally, David concludes his confession in verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant to me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my God, my Savior, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Having declared his dependency upon God, having now gotten real about his sin with God, and having received his forgiveness, David now wants to sense what's been missing in his life for well over a year the presence of God. And this prayer that we read in the second part of Psalm 51 is a prayer for not only transformation, but for the restoration of freedom and joy to be experienced in his life. And notice in verse 14 and 15 what David says, God, I want to sing. I want to be in a place of joy where I can sing of your praise. And how many of you know that if you're singing, you're probably happy? Right? I don't know too many people that are out there singing and are grumpy. But if we're singing, it's because there is joy in our hearts. And the truth is, church, this morning, that when we get busy burning up our time and our energy trying to cover sin, it consumes our joy. It consumes our joy. And in those moments when we're trying so busily to, to keep our stuff, our garbage, hidden from others, God can feel like he's light years away. It can feel like our prayers are just shouting at an empty sky. When we open God's word, it's lifeless to us. And when we come to church, it can feel like a threatening experience. But like David, once we've been renewed through confession, 
God is able to flood our lives with joy and restore to us that eager obedience that was a hallmark of our lives. You see, guys, unlike our culture that kicks people out and says you can never come back because of your sin and your mistake, God doesn't cancel us. God cancels our sin, and we are brought back into right relationship through the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. True confession starts in the hearts of those who seek restoration of God, God's work in their lives. And so we see in the life of David, the example of David, from his own words in Psalm 51, that indeed, confession and forgiveness are near and dear to the heart of God regardless of what place or point we find ourselves in culture, whether it's a cancel culture or not, our God desires our hearts to be in a place of confession and repentance. David declares in 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifices, O God, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. I think if David were perhaps writing today this same verse, he might say, God, you're not interested in an apology tweet, or I would tweet it. God's not interested in that. God's not interested in our contrived forms of outward expression of remorse over our sin. God has always and forever been interested in the heart of man, the heart of woman, the heart of his followers. And so true confession starts in the hearts of those who love their God and submit sincerely to him. But as we think about this, I want you to remember back for a moment very quickly to our original story. Back to the anonymous storefront confessions that happened in the middle of Manhattan. And my question is this. Would the social experiment have been as transformative had the written confessions never made it to that storefront window and instead just remained sealed in their envelopes. Surely there would have been some who would receive some relief from writing down their secrets on a piece of paper, even if nobody else saw it. But in this moment, I think the freedom from the guilt came as a result of the vulnerability that people were able to share. Because why else would hundreds of people have literally participated in this experiment? There's something powerfully freeing about being able to be transparent about our flaws and our weaknesses. And this is especially true in the life of us as Christ follower. True confession starts in the heart, but in God's kingdom and his economy, confession also ends in the context of community. We're not only to confess to God, but what's more, we're called as followers of Jesus to confess to one another. The book of James puts it this way, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. In other words, James is calling us to practice a lifestyle of confession. In essence, he's saying, make it a habit of confessing your sins to one another. And if you're like me, that's probably a bit of a scary prospect. Because confession is a scary prospect in our cancel culture, is it not? In a society that often uses uh, moral failures as ammunition to contemn and ostracize others, the thought of willingly choosing to be vulnerable before others is enough to even make the most mature believer grow weak in the knees. But here again, church, we see that cancel culture widely skews our understanding of the purpose of confession. 
The ability to be vulnerable was never meant by God to be fuel for social outrage. It was never meant to be fodder for a rumor, rumor mill or to be used to score points on someone that we disagree with online. Instead, confession was given to us lovingly by God and offered as a practice to help us combat and indeed even overcome the secret sins in our lives. Pastor um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer described the power of sin that remains unconfessed. And I love how he says this because he doesn't mince words. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. And the more isolated a person is, the more destructive the power of sin will be over him. And the truth is, confession crushes the power of that sin. How many of you have ever seen those catfish noodling videos, right? Like where these dudes get down in the water and they stick their hand down a deep, dark hole and that catfish bites onto their hand and when he does, he yanks them out? That's confession because our sin resides in the deepest, darkest parts of our heart. And when we confess, we stick our hand down into that place. And when it latches on, we pull it out so that it has no more power. Confession tears down the barrier of hypocrisy that allows the free flow of grace in the body of Christ. Confession is that healing elixir offered to us by God to purge our bodies of the poison of the deadly sin. And so this morning, church, I'm going to ask us to conduct our own social experiment. Located under your seats, or most of your seats, every other seat, is a piece of paper along with an envelope and a pen. And in just a moment, our worship team is going to come forward and lead us in a song. And as they do so, I want to invite you to just pause for a moment. That if the Holy Spirit has perhaps been tapping on your shoulder this morning, if perhaps God has been pointing to something that you've been too ashamed to deal with him yet, I want to invite you to use this time while the worship team sings to write down your confession on that piece of paper, whatever that sin is, and to offer it to God as a confession of repentance and seeking forgiveness for that sin. And then seal it up back in that envelope. Close the envelope and seal it. And as you do so, I want to encourage you to remember David's example that as we confess to God our secret sins, we do so with a dependency upon his character of his unfailing love. We do so as we get real about the things that are going on in our lives. We receive God's forgiveness to us, and we ask God to restore us in that moment. And when you're done writing down whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has put on your heart, if the Holy Spirit puts anything on your heart, After you've sealed the envelope, you can put that aside and you can continue in prayer or join us in worship. But hold on to that because as I come back after the song, we're going to do something with that envelope. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world Visit us at mosaicwi.com.